You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Good morning, church. This morning's passage will be taken from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. In a 1992 court case, Supreme Court case, which sought to uphold Roe versus Wade, Justice Anthony Kennedy uttered words that would later be known as the sweet mystery of life. This is what he said. He said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life. In other words, he said, true freedom, which he was arguing the Constitution provides, is the freedom to disregard agreed-upon objective truth and embrace the concepts that align best with our own personal preferences, even if it costs those around us or within us. And the highest court in the land chose to interpret the law through this vision. Now, if we're to be honest, this is a bipartisan issue, by the way. This is the way that many of us approach life. This sweet mystery of life is often laid over our decision-making processes where we convince ourselves that freedom is the ability to define who we are for ourselves and to define for ourselves how we live. In other words, freedom is being untethered 
and unrestricted. This is how we experience inner peace. This is how we experience harmony. But I think what we need to, to, to think long and hard about today is whether or not this is truly freedom. And to illustrate this, I want us to consider our solar system. Now, I'm not a space guy, and I couldn't even tell you how many planets are in our solar system, but I'm going to take a stab at an illustration here that's outside my reach. What if one day one of the planets in our solar system decided for themselves, I no longer want to be fixed to this one object, the sun? That's too restrictive. Uh, And so they decided to pursue freedom outside of their rotation. Is that freedom? Does that lead to peace and harmony? No. That, as far as I can tell, is a situation that is destined for conflict, pain, and loneliness. This Eastertide, we are exploring the space between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise of his return. It's what's known as the already but not yet. And as I've mentioned week after week, this is a space that is marked by paradox, which means that things here seem impossible or even untrue. Ideas seem to clash, but in the long run, they prove to be true. Where up is down, loss is gain, And ultimately, death brings life. And the paradox that we're looking at this morning here in Colossians 3 is that true freedom is found in being bound. What a concept. What a paradox. True freedom is found in being bound. Not untethered, not just floating, but fixed to something. And ultimately, the freedom that God gives us and promises us in salvation is the freedom to come under the loving rule of Jesus Christ, that we are truly alive when we are living for him. And there are three things here that uh, I think are vital for us to understand and learn to apply to our own lives in order to live into and experience the freedom that we were created for. Those three things are this, are these. Pursue the things above, Put to death the sinful things within and put on the new you. Let's look first at pursue the things above. Look look with me one more time in verses 1 through 2. If then, there's the assumption, you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Now, For years, Christians have been warned over and over again, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. In other words, if you got your head in the clouds, you're going to miss what's in front of you. You're all caught up in that spiritual Christianity, heaven, God stuff that you're missing the real world in front of you. But believe it or not, this is actually the key to living and being the best version of yourself. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. He said, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next world. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English 
evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, they all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. He goes on to say, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Here's the irony. You focus on the here and now, and the here and now is going to slip right out of your hands. It's going to escape you. If you make your needs, your wants, your desires, your fulfillment, the aim of your life, then you're going to miss them. But if you make the life and the promises of heaven your aim, then you're going to find that you're the kind of person that seeks to fulfill the wants and needs and desires of those around you. And in that process, you will find your own fulfillment. Aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get neither. And so the question is, how do we aim at heaven? What does it mean to, to, to seek the things above? Well, that's a conversation in and of itself. But for starters, Paul tells us that it hinges on where we set our minds. And for the Christian, we must set our minds on our new identity in Jesus Christ. Look with me in verses 3 through 4. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. So within these first four verses of Colossians 3, we're told some really important things about ourselves, that we are crucified, raised, hidden, and will be glorified. These are who you are. These are the truest thing about you. You are not the sum total of your success or your job or the people around you or your relationships or your children or fill in the blank. You are not your best. You are not your worst. This for the Christian, is who you are. And so because this is the truest thing about you, it is so vital that you become familiar with it and set your minds on these things. So let's look at these one by one. First, we are crucified. What does that mean? Well, Christianity isn't just that Jesus died for us. That would be pretty heartwarming. That would be very motivating, this individual who's so loving and so perfect dies for me, but how would that actually change us? How does just wrapping our minds around the fact that Jesus died for us actually change us? No, the Bible tells us that we were actually crucified with him through faith. He says, for you have died. This is talking about us. Jesus died for sin so that you and I could die to our sin. And so therefore, we must consider ourselves dead to sin. This is how we navigate temptation. I am no longer this old person. That is no longer who I am. I am dead to sin, and sin is dead to me. And I refuse to live as some sort of spiritual necrophiliac. I don't mess with dead things. That's not my jam. Crucified. Secondly, we're raised. When we are united with Jesus by faith, we are not only united in his death, we are united in his resurrection. We are dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ, which means I don't just consider myself existing. I'm not just 
floating through this life, just sort of bouncing into things. No, I've been made alive. I've been created to live and truly live. And so therefore, this reality is the grid through which we view life. It's the grid through which we make decisions. We begin to ask important questions like, is this thing, is this opportunity, is this relationship, is this form of entertainment, fill in the blank, is this cultivating life within me, or is this bringing about death? Is this ultimately uh, fostering resurrection life, or is this dragging me back into the grave? Third, it says, your life is hidden with Christ. Now, what that means is that we are safe and secure in Jesus. There's this scene uh, toward the end of the Guardians of the Galaxy where the ship is going down and everyone's going to die. And so Groot stretches out his branches and he covers his friends. And he, he sacrifices himself so that his friends can live. They find themselves, this group of, of this motley crew of people, find themselves hidden in Groot. And as heartwarming as this scene is, it is just simply a dim reflection of the gospel message that we have always had, that we, by faith, are hidden in Jesus Christ. We are safe from eternal death. We are safe from wrath. We are safe from punishment hidden in Christ. And so whenever it feels like the ship of life is going down and we start to turn our direction toward vices to get a little bit of relief, to just get that momentary escape from the world. We must set our minds on the truth that I am hidden in Christ. I am wrapped up. I am, I am secure within his arms of sacrificial love. I don't need to escape. I'm hidden in him. And it says that we will be glorified. We will be glorified, which means my heaven is to come. We all want to live our best life. And that's what we're constantly being encouraged to do. And I think that that's why 2020 has been such a difficult year for us. We would like to think that it's compassion over those around us who are hurting in the world that is hurting. But I think deep down, the selfish part of us is just really bothered that all of our plans for this new decade have gone out the window. And we're realizing this vision that we had of living our best life this year is just vanished. And so as the world continues to condition us and, and try to convince us to live our best life, the Christian realizes that biblically speaking, this is an unrealistic, unbiblical expectation. The Christian must be willing to delay gratification. The world, instant gratification. The kingdom of God, delayed gratification. And that's why we're being encouraged to set our minds not on what is now, but on what's to come. Why? Because what is now can never bear the weight of our souls. That relationship can't hold the weight of your soul. That pleasure can't hold the weight of your soul. That job, that ch child, whatever it is, fill in the blank, it cannot bear the weight of your soul. That's why we must set our minds, set our hopes on what can. Looking at this verse, Sam Storms describes it this way. He says, this is a commanded obsession. Fixate fully. 
Rivet your soul on the grace that you will receive when Christ returns. Tolerate no distractions. Entertain no diversions. Don't let your mind be swayed. Devote every ounce of mental and spiritual and emotional energy to concentrating and contemplating on the grace that is to come. Pursuing the things that are above. Secondly, secondly, we must learn to put to death sinful things within. Now, there's a 17th century pastor and author named John Owen who wrote this little book that became like a staple in Christian literature, and it's called The Mortification of Sin. The Mortification. Now, this is the way that the old translations render a passage like this. Mortify the flesh. Mortify the earthly desires within. And one of the most memorable quotes from this book, I'll never forget, he says, be killing sin or sin be killing you. Put to death sin or sin will be putting you to death. See, we tend to think of sin whenever we are willing to think about it and talk about it. We tend to think about sin as these bad things that we shouldn't do. Sometimes we understand why we shouldn't do them. Sometimes we don't even really understand why. I don't know. Like, I guess the Bible kind of says not to. I don't know. And so we trivialize it, and we tiptoe around it, and we make excuses for certain ones, and we begin to call things white lies, and we begin to justify that, well, this isn't as bad as this, and this isn't as bad as that, and well, at least I'm not doing this. And we make all these excuses. But when the Bible talks about sin, it is way, way more than just like naughty things that you shouldn't do. Listen to how Fleming Rutledge put it. She said, sin is not so much a collection of individual misdeeds. It's not just like a little collection of the bad things that you do. But it's an active, malevolent agency bent upon despoiling, imprisonment, and death. It is the utter undoing of God's purposes. How does your definition of sin add up to that? See, this is why Paul sums up sin here as idolatry, which is idolatry. This is not just naughty things. This is an issue of worship and devotion. This isn't just the bad things that we do. These are things that want to control us and at the end of the day ultimately want us to bow before them in submission This is why addiction is such a very real thing in our world. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that there are physiological, emotional, sociological dynamics and elements of addiction. I'm not ignoring that. But spiritually speaking, you give sin an inch, and it's going to want to take a mile every single time. And so to highlight and to contrast this, we're told in verse 15 to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Not just be present, not just filling and fulfilling, but ruling and reigning in our hearts. And so here's the idea between these two contrasts. What Paul is essentially showing us is that you are being ruled by something. It is either Christ or your own fleshly desires. One brings freedom and everything else will bring further bondage. Friend, the freedom that you desire most is not freedom to do what you want. It is not the freedom to call your shots and to live untethered. Believe it or not, the freedom that you long for most 
is the freedom to say no to what undermines life and yes to what brings flourishing. Here's how the Bible would describe it. Freedom is the ability to say no to sin and yes to Christ. And the good news is that the resurrection makes this a reality for us. This is something that we can live into now that Christ is risen from the grave. So, Paul begins to name these areas that we need to put to death. As we read through this list, we're reminded that he's speaking to a real-life church just like us. We're given kind of the full spectrum of sin here. He's covering many of the bases. They're not that different from us. And so he names the areas that need to be put to death. He says sexual immorality, which is essentially a sexual act that is carried out outside of the union of covenant marriage between one woman and one man. God's design for marriage. Anything sexual, whether experience or physical or emotional or, or, or even motivation of the heart, anything outside of marriage is categorized as sexual immorality. He also mentions impurity, which means tainted, tainted motives, or passion, which is inordinate desires. It's not just like, oh man, I want that thing. It's like, I need that thing. I can't live without it. Um, evil desire, which means deviant desires. This is more on the sort of deviant side of things. Covetousness, which is greed and jealousy. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. He even alludes to racial divisions and racial superiority. If we're tempted to think that we're exempt from this, he has covered every single one of us here. We find ourselves somehow some way, guilty according to this list. According to the scripture, these are the things that need to be put to death. And the longer that we tolerate them, and the longer that we make excuses for them, the more that we will become dependent on them and ruled by them. That is the sad outcome of tolerance in our life. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, and I shared this story earlier this year, but whatever, it's good. So there's this man, a ghost, who's got this pet lizard, red lizard, that symbolizes sin. And there's this scene where the angel comes to him, and he recognizes that this lizard is such a, a, an annoyance. He's making this man's life miserable. And the angel says, would you like me to make this lizard be quiet? And the ghost says, of course I would. Thank you very much. And so the angel says, okay, I'm, then I'm going to kill him. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. No one said anything about that. And the angel says, well, don't you want me to kill him? Well, he says, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I, I hardly meant to bother you with anything so as, you know, as, as, as drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel. His burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, well there's time to discuss that later. No, there's no time, the angel says. May I kill it? Please, I, I meant, never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, like, don't bother. Look, look, he's gone to sleep on his own. I, I'm sure it's going to be all right now. Thank you. May I kill it? The angel asks again. Honestly, I, I don't think that that's necessary. I'm sure I'm going to be able to keep it in order now. You know, I, I think the gradual process would be much better than killing it. And the angel responds and says, the gradual process is of no use at all. And more excuses go back and forth and back and forth. And, and sooner than later, the, angel, or the, the, the lizard begins to whisper in his ear. And he begins to say, be careful. Be careful. He can do what he says. That angel will kill me. 
one fatal word from you and he will. And then you're gonna be without me forever and ever. I'll be so good. I promise sometimes I've gotten a little bit out of hand, but I promise I won't do it again. So do I have permission, the angel says to the ghost. And he says, you're right. It'd be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then may I? I need your, I need your response. I need your word. And he says, get on with it, won't you? And he ends up whimpering, God help me, God help me, God help me. And that is a picture of that battle. Of I, I want to be free from this thing. It's making my, my life miserable. And yet, I can't vision, envision life without it. I hate it, but I'm dependent on it. These are the very sins that God tells us to put to death. And so how do we put sin to death? That's the million-dollar question. Well, Owen, he goes on to say to kill something is to take away the principle of its strength, its vigor, and power so that it cannot act or exert or put forth any proper actions of its own. In other words, that's a fancy way of saying you got to cut off its life source. you got to cut it off, man. Now, one of the oldest military tactics known to man was that in order to siege a city, you got to cut off their food and water supply. If you can't drive them out, you starve them out. Here's the interesting thing. The Bible tells us that we are to love our enemies and explicitly tells us to feed them, care for them, love them. Here's one exception. This is where the Bible says you got to make this exception. You do not care for, love, or feed your sin. And you will never overcome your sin struggle until you starve your sinful urges. In fact, Romans 13, it says this, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. You've got to stop feeding. You've got to stop providing for it. You've got to stop making opportunity for it. And so the way to cut it off, the Bible tells us, is to bring it to God in confession. This is the way that that life source of sin, trying to suck all the life out of us, is severed as we bring it to God in confession. It's through repentance and faith. That's where we find the healing that we need. But here's one potential problem. I put one big sinful area in my life to death. I confess it. I cut it off. But like that old arcade game, whack-a-mole, I beat this one, and then one more appears. And then I hit that one, and then another one appears. And it just seems to go on and on and on. And so how does life not just turn into one big, exhausting endeavor of just slaying this moving target? I conquer this one, and this one shows up, and I conquer this one, and then this one shows up. How do we beat it? Well, to draw out the illustration a little bit further, we got to stop feeding at quarters, and we got to find a better game. Which leads us to our third point. Put it on the new you. Put it on the new you. In order to do away with the old, we've got to embrace the new. This is what Christians for years and years and years have called the expulsive power of a new affection. We will constantly find ourselves falling back into the patterns of the old until we are captivated by the worth and the value of something new. Friend, Christianity is 
not this stoic religion where we shut down our feelings and we shut down our desires and we're constantly scolding ourselves and know that that's not good. Like these dull, boring, suppressed people. That's not Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is about finding greater satisfaction and greater fulfillment and greater pleasure in Jesus Christ. He is the greater fill in the blank. He, his, his affection is greater than that next lover. His provision is greater than that job that you're jealous about. His justice is greater than, than your ability to exact revenge. His comfort is greater than the things that you look to for temporary escape. Fill in the blank. Jesus is greater. And you're never going to become the person that you were intended to be. By simply putting off the old you. By simply trying to stop old bad habits. The vision of freedom and the vision of fulfillment here only comes by putting on the new self. That's what we're told in verse 10. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, in the early church, there was this tradition that when a man or woman was getting baptized, they would remove their old clothes and they would receive these white, beautiful robes. And then they would be baptized and they would receive those robes. In fact, you can still see this tradition in some parts of the world today. And this is the imagery that Paul is evoking here. You gotta put off the old you and you gotta put on the new you. You've gotta adorn yourself with the power, the righteousness, and the satisfaction that Jesus gives to you through salvation as a gift of grace. You've gotta put on now who you are in Christ. You gotta put on these benefits. Adorn yourself in these things. The new you that's marked by holiness in the place of immorality. The new you that's marked by compassion in the place of covetousness. The new you that's marked by forgiveness instead of anger and malice. The new you that's marked by peace in the places of division. The new you that's marked by praise in the places of lies and obscene talk. See, the vision for the Christian life isn't simply stop doing bad things, naughty you. It's new resurrection power to do right things and to experience more fulfilling things as we seek Christ. In conclusion, the old sinful self can be summed up as idolatry. But the new renewed you can be summed up with this. Love. The old you marked by idolatry the new you marked by love. In fact, that's what we're called as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That is who you are, chosen, holy, beloved. We are those who are the objects and now the conduits of God's eternal love. And so for this reason, we're told in, in verse 14, above all these things, as a way of sort of encompassing all these things together, put on love, 
which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is what brings your life into alignment. This is what brings freedom into your life. This is the kind of fulfillment that you desire most in your life. Here's how you experience it. Love. Not self-love, but love for God and love for others. And as you seek to pour out that love that God provides, what you will discover, the paradox that you will be living into as you pour out love, is that you will discover the constant stream of God's love pouring into you and overflowing. And so my, my prayer for you, friend, is that the word of Christ would dwell so richly within you that it would overflow into the world around you. God bless.